0: tell you, what, what a wonderful VBS season. And really, our church just wants to thank uh, the families, our volunteers, everyone involved. It was truly a blessing to be part of, and we're looking forward to next year already. If you would, please, turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And if you're visiting us today, or if you're new, uh, as a church family, we have just finished studying uh, what are sometimes referred to as the birth narratives. And they're found in Luke's chapter 1 and 2, and we've observed through the writer who is named, obviously, Luke. He was a uh, close traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. We learn through him the circumstances, the events surrounding the births of both John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. And we discovered as a church family, there were multiple angelic visitations, numerous prophecies announcing these births that were witnessed by a whole lot of folks, a lot of people in the land of Judea. And chapter 1 verse 65 told us that that these events that happened with the shepherds and, and with the visitations and with the prophecies, all of these events they caused a righteous kind of fear amongst the people. It should. For through the final Old Testament prophet Malachi, God said, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when He appears. For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So, Scripture had promised that there's going to be a purifying in Israel. It's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Malachi 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming like a burning furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And in the final paragraph of that same book, written by Malachi some 400 years, more than 400 years before Christ, it says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So at the time of the birth of John the Baptist, There was this godly sense of fear. What was going to happen, people are asking. Luke says that the hill country around Judea, there was this stir. What's this baby John going to be? And we also know that at the Jerusalem temple, people knew that John's father, Zacharias, had seen this vision. They had learned that when his mouth was unstopped. The people were on edge. You know, A short term later, uh, we had seen that Jesus was dedicated at the temple. And this man named Simeon, who we uh, believe was a priest, held up Jesus in front of the people publicly, saying, this is the Christ. And then there was an 84-year-old prophetess named Anna that, that went around telling everyone about Jesus who was waiting for the redemption of Israel. All the people who were waiting for that. Reason I bring this up again that we've studied uh, in the last couple months, we should be able to understand that sometime later, after Christ's birth, because of all these things, that when those magi arrived from the east, asking in Matthew 2, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. We should be able to understand why then Herod, when he heard this, was troubled. And it says, all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Everyone had heard about the forerunner being born. Everyone had heard uh, about the Christ coming, there'd be a new king. There was a stir in Jerusalem. You know, folks, transfer of powers back then weren't always polite, right? Right? All these reports, they had social and, and, and political repercussions with them. So much to the point that Herod, Herod struck out a children less than two years old, right? He didn't want anyone challenging his throne. And you know, folks, where Christ is proclaimed, there ought to be a stir. There ought to be a righteous fear. We ought to expect that our reports will we'll cause some opposition, our reports of Christ, as it has still today the most serious of implications. Luke 11.23, Christ says, you're either with Him or you're against Him. There's no middle ground with Jesus, for He Himself said, He who is not with Me is against Me. And he who does not gather with Me, He scatters. Herod the Great stood against Christ. Christ won. Now in our text, almost 30 years have passed, folks. Luke records now this public emergence of the forerunner, uh, paving the way for Christ as promised exactly by Malachi the prophet. In Luke 3, verses 1-6, through we see now the rise of John the baptizer. Beginning in verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod Antipas was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysianus was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, what happened? The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Amen? And as we previously discussed in chapters 1 and 2, you know, Luke goes to great lengths, in his writing, to assure every reader that the events that he is putting down are historical. We've talked about that. The original recipient of this letter, a high official named Theophilus, at that time, he would have recognized the names of these people. He would have known who they are, these people that Luke lists. Very clearly, this Gospel is written Very important. It's written as a historical document. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus Christ is God's only beloved Son. The only one. He came as predicted the first time Scripture promises us He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back. 2 Timothy 4.3 All you have to do is read the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, to look to see what that looks like. Our job as Christians, our job as parents, our job as friends, uh, as brothers and sisters, all those that we meet, it's to prepare people for Christ's coming. John the Baptist was going to do exactly that. God used his testimony, his preaching, to pave the road for the arrival. That is the first advent of Christ. And as we previously learned, Jesus assures there's no greater prophet that had arisen than John. Why was he the greatest? Well, it was because of the other Old Testament prophets, all they could do is talk about Christ Talk about the coming Messiah. Talk about the seed of the woman who would save us from our sins. They could prophesy about it. They could write about it. John the Baptist got to point right at him. As the crowds were coming and they were watching John the Baptist preach, baptize that that very day, as Jesus approached near Bethany on the east side of the Jordan, John declared John 129 this is beautiful Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world How greater revelation than that hmm. John was a very great prophet We're told in verse 2 that the word of God came directly to him during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas Now we're supposed to know that there's only one high priest, right? Only supposed to be one high priest. So did Luke make an error? That is asserted by some here because officially Annas ceased being high priest in A.D. 16. Um, No, actually there was no error. The prominent Jewish historian who we know of as Josephus, he documents that the Roman government there Uh, installed Caiaphas as high priest. Caiaphas was a political appointment after the Roman government had deposed Annas in the year 16 AD. The high priesthood, that had become a political appointment. That was the religion of that day. But Annas still with the people and with others, he retained that de facto control of the high priesthood, of that office, This is demonstrated in how the night of his betrayal, Jesus first went to Annas, right? And then later on went to Caiaphas. Annas still held uh, a lot of influence and control over the office. Caiaphas, he was actually a son-in-law of Annas, acted as like a figurehead in the temple. So Luke got it right. It was the high priesthood, we're told, of Annas and Caiaphas. The high priests. But to whom did God's word come to? John the Baptist. The humble uh, son of a humble priest named Zacharias who made his life where? In the temple? No. Out in the wilderness. What a contrast. What a contrast. You have the high priesthood the materialistic religion of the grandiose temple. One that emphasized power, prestige, influence, money. You know, the temple, it had all those visible trappings of success. It had the finances, it had the visual effects, it had the audible effects, the trumpets had the sacrifices. The lure of it was, imp- was impressionable. It would lure you. It, it, it had a sense of religion to it. But instead of a place of prayer, it had become a commercial enterprise. It was filled with money changers and merchants exploiting the, exploiting the visitors for another dollar. In a short time, it will be cleansed by Christ as He puts together a cord of whips as He cleanses the temple. To hear the Word of God, though, you had to go out in the wilderness. I tell you folks, the whole emphasis on money just gotten way out of control. Way out of control. I'm, I'm actually... We talk about money and taking offerings, and each church does it differently, you know. Um, I'm thankful for electronic giving today. I really am. I know a number of people give electronic, uh, electronically. I don't know how much they give. I don't watch that. But I know from our secretary that a number of people are using electronic giving. Um, some give electronically. Personally, I write out one check a month. People do it at different timings. Nobody knows when the plate passes who's giving, what, when, where, why, or how. It's just an opportunity to give. My old church, uh, over 43 years they existed, never passed a plate. Just wasn't something they did. Not that passing the plate's wrong, they just never did it. They bolted an offering box back by the doors. People left over 43 years. People who were moved by the Spirit Wanted to be part of what was going on in the church, will say, You know what? Is there anywhere I can give? That's the way the Spirit works. Is there any way I can be part of this? Every year, um, you know, we have people call about VBS, since so we have VBS families, and we'll get on the phone, Gerald field questions like, How much do you charge for your VBS? What do we charge? Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. We don't make money on VBS. We don't make any money on a Wano when the kids come in. They might buy a book to facilitate their their study. Uh, But there's no charge. People at the temple, they were extracting money from people. Guilting people into giving. As a church, as Christians, we always need to be mindful. Not to give that impression that we're looking for people's money. A way to make money off of religion. People didn't sense that problem with John. Nope. He dressed different. He lived in the wilderness. He was a straight talker, folks. It was really refreshing for the people. They came out to hear him preach. We're going to talk a little bit more in future weeks about John's kind of unique dress style, about his provocative message. We're going to talk about those in a couple of weeks. I'm going to go on vacation here now. Pastor Weiler will be preaching next week. Um, in the meantime, I hope nobody here is planning out and going and, to go out and buy a new wardrobe of camel vests. Nobody's going to do that, right? Until I get back. We'll talk about why he dressed the way he did, why he had uh, a message that, uh, that he did. Because, be quite honest, sometimes today you run across folks and and, and uh, evangelists, in a sense, but they get the feeling that the more strangely you can dress and the more provocative you can be as a preacher, that somehow you'll be more effective. Um, but our Gospels, we'll see coming up, it's not... You know, you brood of vipers. That will be our next text. It, it, it's not as, as Jonah when we study Jonah, yet 40 days and Port St. Lucie is going to be destroyed. We, we have a ministry of reconciliation. A ministry of reconciliation. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 5 indicates actually we should be tougher on our own number than those we are winning to Christ. Not less truthful but tougher. Um, Jesus was harshest, by the way, on the hypocrites who were the religious elite. He was most merciful, most understanding, most gentle with those he was trying to draw to Christ. So we've got to keep that in balance. We'll talk about that in our next message. Um, Today, our message... That we give is a little different period, a little different message than the audience of John. But there is one similarity to John's ministry we surely do practice. That is a baptism of repentance. Verse 3, And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Very important. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Immersing in water never saves anyone, folks. Throughout 2,000 years, we've had scores of people throughout church history, who have been put in the water that didn't have any heart change whatsoever. They just got wet, right? They never demonstrate any saving faith in Christ. And without faith, baptism's just water. That's all it is. No, more effective uh, would it be, equally effective, just pushing someone in a lake, if their heart isn't there, if there's no repentant heart It's the manifestation or evidence of repentance in our lives which actually indicates that the Holy Spirit has changed our heart, right? The activity of repentance, the the heart of repentance, the sorrow over sin is actually the evidence that Christ has worked in our heart. Not that someone got wet. It's a spiritual rebirth of the Holy Spirit causing a heartfelt remorse that correctly indicates that we have been chosen as one of God's children, and thus, on that basis, He has forgiven us our sins. Titus 3.5 says, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Savior, so that by being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. The Holy Spirit, He causes a spiritual rebirth. You heard Jesus tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. Uh, that's a heart change that causes a repentance, a love for God that makes us want to display our allegiance to Christ. Our allegiance to God through the ceremony, through the act, through the, through the action of water baptism. But the water itself doesn't save. That's why the Apostle Paul, as he was dealing with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can look, they were battling over who had the better baptism. Was it Peter's baptism better or was it uh, uh, Apollos' baptism better or was it uh, who are you baptized by is what they're worried about. What's your denomination is what they were asking. Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would ever say that you were baptized in my name. Now now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If water baptism, just putting someone in the water to get wet, saved anyone, Paul would have never said that. It's not the water baptism that saved, but the Holy Spirit baptism that saves. It's only in this context of this passage that we can properly understand First Peter 3:18. listen closely. For Christ also died once for all sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison were once, once disobedience when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So, Christ went and preached to the people. That's a different sermon for a different day. The people who were actually rebelling at the time of Noah. During the construction of the ark, he says, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Follow me? In the ark, through the water. And then Peter says, corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you. What? I've actually heard preachers stop right there. You see? Baptism now saves you. But Peter continues. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. We're saying this. Not a physical baptism. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. What then? He says. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the clear conscience through knowing the resurrection of Christ, the spirit baptism that saves us. So, consistent uh, with the Apostle Paul in that difficult passage, Peter actually concludes it's not a physical baptism, it's not a water baptism that saves anyone. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, it's a belief in the resurrection for our sins. He died for our sins, rose from the dead. Repentance, a change of heart, is the true evidence of salvation. Water comes after repentance. After faith in Christ, consistent throughout Scripture Acts: 241, it is only those who have received God's word through faith. Consequently, they've already been saved. It is only those who were baptized, permitted to be baptized. With that said, there are still some differences between John's baptism and what we uh, have today. One significant difference between John's and ours is that the object of his faith, it was the Messiah yet to come and die. He and his followers in Israel, they were still obligated to keep the law, which was a tutor to lead lead them to grace. Um... Our baptism is looking back. It is symbolic of our individual trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Colossians 2.12 says, We have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we look back, our baptism is a picture of dying to ourselves, he who is in Christ is a new creation, right? It's a picture of us dying to our old life and being rebirthed and resurrected into the new life. It is a picture of being born again. It's a profession. It's a profession of faith in Christ. Um, John the Baptist, he didn't completely yet understand with entirety the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. Uh, Parts of it to him were still a mystery. But the most important thing to recognize in verse 4 is is that John knew that salvation had come to Israel. He knew that. Um, He very boldly identifies himself as Christ's forerunner by quoting uh, from our scripture reading earlier, Isaiah chapter 40 saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Again, this this should have shaken Jerusalem to the core. When John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, everyone knew that that was Isaiah. Everyone knew exactly what he was asserting. John the Baptist, he was paving the way for the acceptance of the Christ, making ready the way for the Lord, making paths straight. It was his ministry to prepare others, to prepare the way for the Lord. He wasn't alone by himself going to prepare the way. He was the voice crying out, telling others, prepare for the way of the Lord. Make the path straight. He was calling for a response from the people. That is what he was doing. Uh, His cry is, is one of those recorded in all four Gospels. Prepare the way of the Lord. Folks, is anyone listening? Are the people still lacking understanding? Does John's declaration apply only to 2,000 years ago? He was preparing people for Christ's first advent. For us, we are preparing people for Christ's second advent. He is still coming. We are preparing for the arrival of the Lord, and God is paving the way. Don't quite follow me there. Uh, Notice verses 5 and 6. Please listen closely to John's words here. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Your translation might say all mankind all flesh will see the salvation of the God of God. what John is prophesying in verses five and six isn 't something that 's going to be fulfilled in his lifetime it 's not something he 's going to accomplish he 's quoting Isaiah the prophet from hundreds of years before Christ. Isaiah in, in chapter forty is he 's pre- predicting that universal scope of the gospel going everywhere. In verse 6, all flesh, meaning all mankind, will see the salvation of God. That's a promise. It in no way suggests that every single individual will hear about Christ. Many throughout the ages, throughout the hundreds and thousands of years, have died in their sins without ever hearing about Christ. God isn't obligated to save every person on the planet. As creator and judge, as a righteous and holy judge, he's obligated to punish unrighteousness and sin. We get, we get uh, the message and we can decide whether, as Christians here or pre-Christian, we get to, in a sense, respond to whether or not we're going to accept Christ as the penalty for our sins and him dying for us on the cross, or we can decide to take the punishment for ourselves. You've all got that right in front of you. One way or another, sin is going to be punished. Either at the cross or by ourselves, uh, with ourselves in hell. Isaiah's prophecy doesn't indicate that before Christ returned to consummate his kingdom that everyone's going to hear the gospel. It indicates that the gospel of salvation will be preached to all mankind. To all flesh. All, all groups of people. This means the gospel has a universal scope to all the nations. God has shown mercy at the cross. The response of genuine believers is to go with the gospel, remind the world that they are sinners condemned. Sinners hopeless without Christ and that a holy and righteous Son of God took the punishment for our sins so that we can be set free. That is the gospel. That is why, 1 Corinthians 1 we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's why we send Kim Hibbard, our missionary to India. She's over there, uh, she's a language specialist. And she's with a team translating the scriptures into remote tribal languages that have never had a Bible before. That's why we're behind that ministry. They get to hear the gospel for the first time ever in their language. We do it because of this passage right here. Christ said, Go into all the world. Kim Hibbert, by the way, she's back on furlough now. She's going to be giving us an updated report. September 24th. Um, This is why we send pennies from our VBS to the Bjork family in Croatia who share the gospel with children again in Croatia. It's why Crystal Rendell is in Niger and she is is supporting ministries there. It's why the Coleman family in Italy is planting churches in northern Italy and on and on. Missionaries don't go in the field because it's light duty, folks. It's not light duty. it's very, very hard duty. Paul the Apostle Paul learned that more than anyone. Second Corinthians 11, you can see what he went through. But we send them, and they go to preach the gospel because of the greatness of Christ. We preach here because Christ is returning the great and terrible day of the Lord, folks. It's still coming. And like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, God is still purifying. He is still calling people to trust and and, and in repentance. He is purifying people of their sins. It's a reason that we do VBS. It's a reason that we hand out gospel tracts to people on the street or at the gas pump. It's a reason we invite people to church. It's a reason that we declare Christ because He's coming. I think sometimes we forget that. The church forgets He's coming, folks. It's an exaggeration, but sometimes, uh, just for illustration, sometimes it seems like the church feels that our, our greatest goal is to make sure that every high school student has a prom dress. We're here to declare Christ, folks. Folks. Our overseas missionaries, uh, locally, we run into all kinds of obstacles to that. As we preach, Christ is building his church. Scripture says, in the gates of hell, we will not be able to withstand the expanse of the gospel. You might think to yourself, it's like, well, look at America. You know, it's kind of foiling. It's like, uh, you know, is it really expanding? You bet. Every single day, there are more people trusting in Christ, and Christ's kingdom is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day because He never loses any. There is no stop to the expanse of the gospel. That's the work that we are in. Even when times are down, even when the, the culture is against us, the kingdom's always expanding for the glory of Christ. And that's what our work is, and, and things stand in our way. Mountains. It appears, stand in our way. Directly in front of us sometimes. And in fact, a mountain may stay directly in our way. Stand directly in our way, directly in front of us. But scripture says for the progress of the gospel, that mountain will be made low. It will be made low. We pray for the advance of the gospel. God paves the way and opens the door to the gospel. And the barriers that appear as mountains overcome will be moved. Just as Christ said uh, to to the fig tree as it withered, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even you will say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and it will happen. Mountains will be moved as we prepare people for Christ. You might have already gathered this. Jesus wasn't talking about literal mountains. I don't see a whole lot of the Rocky Mountains leveled out there anywhere. He was giving an illustration of the barriers we face that are leveled all the time. Folks, you guys have been here for a while. I've been here a little over three years. I'm telling you, I could point to at least three Probably more. But for sure, three mountains that have moved since I've been here in three years. Mountains that in no way we felt we could handle, or a corner that we could turn. Elder board didn't know how to respond. Financial issues, all kinds of issues. And God paved the way. It's happening all the time for the progress of the gospel. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. Um, Folks, as we pray, those mountains will be laid low. That's what we need to learn from John the Baptist uh, as we continue to step forward in faith locally. As we go with the gospel uh, broadly around the world. If perhaps, God willing, we get steered to Niger. And we get to, to preach the gospel there. If we get to share with an orphanage over there. Whatever it may be, John the Baptist tells us that as it looks like, no way this is going to happen. No way we will get through. There's a mountain in our way, they'll be laid low. Folks, in preparation for Christ's return, we are going to see mountains moved. We need to step out in faith. We need to step out in faith and let God pave the way. Expect, as Scripture says, every ravine to be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. That's why we invite uh, people to Vacation Bible School to preach the gospel here and abroad. And that's what we must do to prepare for the terrible day of the Lord. He's a merciful God, folks. He is a merciful God. To have His Son, to to willingly uh, have His Son bear the sins of ours on the cross. What greater gift could there be than that? That we could spend eternity just by faith, trusting that Jesus died for us, hung on the cross as God's precious sinless Son, and then rose again in victory what greater purpose could we have than to declare Christ? Us as a church, is a time for action. It's a time of faith. It's a time for preaching and progress of the gospel. It's time to watch the Lord make the path straight. We know what God has called us to do, and He will accomplish it. You know, Marvin Gaye sang a song about this. He said there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. There ain't no river wide enough to keep me away from you, babe. Y'all didn't realize that was a gospel song, did you? Let's pray.